Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Strong Docs podcast. I'm your host, Seth Myers, and today we've got a very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Aaron Horshig, and he is a doctor of physical therapy in Kansas City. Um, a lot of you might know him uh, as being the man behind the Squat University. Um, he's a weightlifter and author of the Squat Bible. So Aaron, very, very happy to have you on the show, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for having me on the show, for sure. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, like you said, doctor of physical therapy from Kansas City. I work at Boost Physical Therapy and Sports Performance. Uh, we're a pretty small clinic. We have about six locations around the KC metro area. But like you said also, my background is in weightlifting and strength and conditioning. I did that starting, uh, starting my first competition back in 2005 before weightlifting was very big. You know, uh, back in the day, uh, it was very normal to go to different competitions all across the United States, and you see the same people every single time. It's a very small community, and since the rise in CrossFit, it's just been crazy how big the sport of weightlifting has grown. But yeah, so that's my background with that, going through exercise science with an undergrad, and then going and eventually getting my doctorate in physical therapy. And then since then, I've been out in Kansas City, like I said, uh, practicing as a physical therapist. And in that time, my main goal has really been to try to merge my background in strength conditioning with an emphasis in Olympic weightlifting and merge that with my practice as a physical therapist. So I treat athletes all the way from your eight-year-old soccer player to your uh, college-level football player with a torn ACL, uh, 25-year-old crossfitter uh, with the shirt, uh, you know, hurt uh, shoulder or anything like that. And then yeah. uh, grandma who has a total knee replacement. So I, I definitely see sort of a, a very large mix of, of people at my clinic. And uh, yeah, that's where I've been for the past six years now. And then within the past three years, I've really tried to do a lot of outreach to really help educate others and other barbell athletes such as myself that um, you know, it's okay to go through life and, um, you know, how to understand how to fix different injuries that pop up, you know, every single weightlifter, powerlifter, crossfitter, we go through life. And, uh, as we're competing and training, there's rarely a year that you are just completely pain-free. There's always yeah. some ache and pain that you're always feeling. And mm -hmm. that was sort of my outreach as a physical therapist that I felt like I could best help others was sort of coming from that perspective of, hey, here's how you can do things to A, not only improve your technique to fix and find your potential of what's out there performance-wise, but also here's how you can also start fixing those normal aches and pains. And that's sort of how Squat University started back in 2015. It's been three years now and uh, still having fun with it. I, I love doing it every single day. Nice. Uh, yeah, so Squat University, if you guys are not following on Instagram, really, really good content. It's kind of crazy. I'm surprised you're able to keep up with all that because it's a lot. Um, it is. It takes a lot of time, man. I'll tell you, a lot of people, I was in Toronto last weekend doing a seminar up there and someone asked me, they're like, oh, I thought Squat University was your full-time job. And I'm like, really? no, I, I, work 40, I work 40 to 50 hours a week as a physical therapist treating people throughout the week, uh, coming back from any type of injury, like I said. And then on top of that, I, I run Squat University. So uh, I try to message back people as often as possible. I'm huge on engagement with the people that follow me. Um, every single person that comments on a post that I put up, I try to reply to, help them answer a question that they have. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a full-time gig. But the thing is, is that it's definitely my passion. It's yeah. definitely what I've been put on this earth to do. So it doesn't seem like work. It's definitely just something that uh, is... Yeah. It's fun to do. I love doing it. Yeah. yeah. So if you guys aren't following that page or haven't uh, interacted with that page, uh, feel free to do that because there's a lot of good information and not just in the post, but even like the stories, there's a ton of stories throughout the day uh, on the Instagram uh, page there. So with that and knowing that uh, we've got the squat Bible being uh, a really awesome book, we're going to dive into basically the squat as being our topic for today. And so I'll just let you kind of uh, start us off. But I guess my, my big thing is, you know, people in fitness or they want to be healthy. Uh, do you think or why do you think, you know, squatting should be maybe a staple in their regular training? Yeah. I mean, the first and foremost thing people have to understand is the squat is before an exercise, it's a movement. And I think a lot of times today, people have sort of rearranged their priorities as how, how they view the body and exercise and movement to think that the squat is only an exercise before it's a, it's a movement. And for that reason, I think that's why we've invited in so many issues into the, into the picture as far as injuries. 
and as far as limiting our full potential as an athlete and why injuries have come into the pictures because we, we only think of the squat as an exercise. Um, there's a really great analogy that Gray Cook, who's a physical therapist, he wrote the book uh, Movement. He developed the FMS screen, which I know a number of people are familiar with, called the performance pyramid. It's a way of breaking down and uh, looking at the body of an athlete, how it should ideally be set up. And if you can think about a pyramid, it's got a very wide base at the bottom, comes up to a peak at the top. Well, if you can break down that pyramid into three different tiers, the first tier would be the quality of movement that's supported by mobility, and stability. Now, mobility is obviously uh, not just the same thing as flexibility. It's your ability to move fully through a range of motion. So if we think about ankle mobility, the more ankle mobility you have, the further you can squat down to a full depth. So it's different than just pure flexibility that a lot of people think. Stability isn't just the ability to be strong, which a lot of people train for. Uh, stability is your ability to limit excessive or unwanted motion. So it's sort of a coordination and balance issue together. Well, the more mobility the more stability you have the better you can move the wider your base of your theoretical athletic performance pyramid can be mm -hmm. the second tier of that is more performance things that we can objectively measure strength speed endurance and that top tier of the pyramid is skill well if you think about it as athletes today or just anyone in the fitness community we very much so focus on that second and third tier of our pyramids. You know, when we go into the gym, we want to set a new five rep max bench press. Uh, as an athlete, you may want to run a faster 40 yard dash. Um, if you have kids, uh, you're, you will rarely see a promotion for a movement, uh, you know, skills week or something like it's always, it's always you're selling a soccer skills camp or a basketball skills camp. It's because we focus so heavily on the production, the things that we can measure and the things that are going to get us on sports centers, top 10 of the week. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. But what happens is that when we do so to such an extent, we've rearranged our athletic priorities to where our pyramids basically tipped upside down. Unfortunately, I've seen way too many athletes that come to me with injuries, whether it's an ankle, a knee, a hip, or a back, and they have basically lost the ability to perform quality squats. Now, they can run, they can jump, they can do other fundamental movements of push-ups, things like that, but they've lost the ability to squat because, like I said, they viewed it only as an exercise in the past. And whenever that's happened, it flips that pyramid upside down. And it doesn't take a, you know, an engineering genius to know that if a pyramid's flipped upside down, the next time a storm blows through, what's going to happen to that pyramid? It's going to tip over. Oh, yeah. And that's how injuries happen. And I've also heard a, a quote that I like to uh, repeat. I don't know who said it at first, maybe Louis Simmons or someone like that. A pyramid can only be as high as the base is wide. Mm -hmm. So if we want to think about what I try to talk about with the squat coming from a, um, a movement perspective first is that whenever you're able to learn how to squat from a body weight squat first and then translate that into a barbell squat and have the quality of movement be the most important thing, you increase the width of your movement, the baseline of that pyramid, allowing yourself to have a higher potential in performance. So if we're talking about learning the squat, the first and foremost thing has to be movement quality. So things I'm looking for uh, as far as movement quality goes, I want to see that you're balanced. I want to see your ability to properly engage your hips at the start of the squat, keep your center of gravity over the middle of your foot. Um, if we're talking about a barbell squat, if you view the squat from the side, that barbell should track up and down over the middle of your foot. That means that your body's in balance and capable of producing efficient force and power. I want to see that your knees are in line with your feet. I don't want to see any knee waver or knee collapse. I want to see that your back staying flat. I don't want to see any back collapse around. I don't want to see any excessive arch or anterior pelvic tilt. So it's all looking at different qualities of the squat first. And then whenever you can translate that and then start adding weight and you can build up your squat, it sets the foundation for so many other movements that people don't understand. So if you want to perform uh, the Olympic lifts, snatch and clean, what do those stem from? It stems from the basics of a squat. If you're going to deadlift, you have to almost squat to get down to then perform the deadlift motion. If you're going to uh, just pick up something, uh, you know, you got a heavy box in your garage, you're going to have to squat down to pick it up. If you're running and jumping, those motions stem from the movement 
of a squat. So the squat's almost one of those fundamental building blocks of so many other movements and lifts throughout the day. So if you cannot squat, there's gonna be so many other areas that you are going to have weak links in the way in which you're moving that can set you up for injury. So that's why I would say above all, the squat is one of the most fundamental movements and exercises that every single person should be able to perform. Now, to the extent of how they perform it, that's going to change, you know, based on your goals. Are you an Olympic weightlifter or are you, you know, a 56 year old uh, woman who just wants to stay fit? That's going to change the uh, priorities in how you're lifting, how much you're lifting, the range of motion that you're going through. I don't need everyone squatting ass to grass, you know, uh, but I think all those different things, it all stems from the idea that every single person, no matter who you are, should have the squat as a part of their foundation for their fitness goals. Perfect. So, I mean, you hammered a bunch of different things there and we'll get, dive into some of them a little bit more as we go. Uh, but so if we know that the squat uh, is a really important movement and we want to perform that movement well, where should we go to, I guess, first learn one, how do I know if I'm doing this right? Uh, how can I progress this correctly? I don't want to mess it up. Uh, like what are some resources that you typically tell patients or clients um, to go to first? I know yeah. one shameless plug would be <laughs> the squat Bible. <laughs> if you guys haven't picked that up, that's a good place because everything that you just mentioned is kind of outlined in some of your chapters here. But, uh, but anyway, mm -hmm. so, so if I want to make sure that I'm doing the right things, I'm learning the squat as a movement, I'm not overdoing it, I'm, you know, correcting the right things, where should I start? For sure. I mean, first and foremost, I would try to find a knowledgeable coach in your area to go and get some hands-on help from. There is nothing that can beat the hands-on help from a qualified individual that knows what they're doing. You can read as much as you want, and that's why I put out so much information in different forms, but having that person that is there to assess you and help you through it that's very knowledgeable is huge. You know, So just Googling you know, different strength conditioning coaches, weightlifting coaches, CrossFit coaches, powerlifting coaches in your area, seeing their background and expertise and seeing how long they've been in the sport coaching can be huge just for that face-to-face, one-on-one attention. Um, but I mean, the big thing, like you mentioned, I am huge on putting out a ton of free content. You know, I, I really think um, the people that automatically charge for a lot of their stuff, you have to log on to their website and pay this premium and, you know, do all this stuff to just to get some information. I, I really think that limits then potential of what they can do, how many people they can reach. My goal is to help each and every single person that ever picks up a barbell understand how to fix their issues, whether that's technique or aches and pains that they have. So all my content that I put out there is free. So squatuniversity.com is my blog website. There's a little thing at the top that says blog database. Click on that. There's so many different resources there as far as how to test your mobility, how to test your stability to find out if you have deficits there, technique help. Um, I know some people, though, they don't, they don't learn the best from reading. So YouTube, you know, there's so many different content uh, creators out there on YouTube. I try to make a lot on that as well. Um, Instagram obviously is, I think my largest platform, but there's, there's really so many people out there today that I see that are putting out great pieces of content to help others, um, who may need a little bit of help with either technique, aches and pains and things like that. So it's, it's great to see the community growing real quickly. Um, yeah. so obviously at squat university, but, um, some of those, do you have any of the names specifically that you recommend? Um, you know what? I'm a huge fan. I like uh, Jacob Harden, his stuff okay. a lot. He's a, a chiropractor based out of Florida, um, and he does just amazing work with the, the strength and conditioning community. Mm -hmm. um, he's probably one of my favorite people out there. Isn't he like at the strength doc or something like that? Um, his, his tag is just at uh, Dr. Jacob Harden. Oh, I thought, okay. I forgot I'm thinking about. Anyway, um, so that's another good one. Uh, so let's say we've learned, um, or actually let's track backwards a little bit because I like some of the stuff you got in your book and I've heard you talk about some of it in some of the other podcasts. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, maybe a few tests or things that people can do on their own that maybe we can talk about verbally and they'd still be able to, be able to understand it, um, to make sure that we are having the right mobility, having the right stability, a few tests that we can talk about. I know some of them you have yeah. to look at, you have to visualize, um, but there's a few that we might be able to mention 
and people can do it, you know, even as they're listening. Yeah. I mean, the most simple one is the five inch wall test for ankle mobility. All you have to do is find a wall, put your foot five inches from the wall. Now, if you don't have a ruler, that's about a fist plus an extended thumb. See from that position, can you drive your knee straight over your toe and touch your knee to the wall without your heel popping off the ground? That's just a very general, you know, test to find out, do you have enough ankle mobility? If not, and you're pretty far away from the wall, then you need to find out why are you restricted? You have stiffness in the backside of your calf or, and, or do you have a pinch or block sensation in the front side of your ankle? So both of those things are going to dictate how you then go about fixing your ankle mobility. Um, the first one is the pinch or block sensation in the front side of your calf. That's usually significant of a joint restriction. So the way in which your bones are moving over each other is not very smooth. You have poor sort of glide in your joint. Uh, that could be due to having like a bone spur. It could be due to having a little bit of scar tissue from maybe previously, you know, sprained ankles, number of things. Either way, that's going to come out with that pinch or block sensation in the front side of the ankle. That has to be cleared up with banded joint mobilizations. That will not resolve itself with just stretching often or foam rolling the back of the calf. So things like that, you know, I share constantly how to do banded joint mobilizations. They're very easy to perform. Um, if, however, you are halted by stiffness in the back of the calf, be it, uh, you know, from either a fascial restriction, which is fascia is sort of like a, a spider web of connective tissue that runs through and envelops all the different tissues back there, or uh, stiffness because of poor flexibility of your calf muscles, like your soleus, which is a smaller muscle that hides underneath your bigger gastroc muscle. Um, those are going to respond to foam rolling and stretching. And uh, the big thing I always tell people, test and then retest. So do that five inch wall test, jam your knee forward. If you come up like three inches short, do some of those different mobility exercises and then retest because if you're by yourself, that's the best way to find out whether or not you were efficient at eliciting the change that you're desiring, which is improved ink mobility. And what that does is whenever you can get your knee to translate further forward over your toe, more ankle mobility. That's going to allow you to squat deeper and have a more upright chest. So all of a sudden it fixes issues that a lot of people have in not being able to squat very deep. The ankles are almost always a culprit or B, they fall forward. Their chest drops forward, pushing them into an off balance position at the bottom of the squat. So I would say 90% of the time, limited ankle mobility is one of the most restricting and causative factors for poor technique uh, in the squat, which if you're not having good technique, your potential then suffers to create a ton of power and lift more weight. So we sort of come at it from two different perspectives, movement perspective, injury perspective, and also the athletic performance side of things. Both of those come together for you know, determining whether or not you're going to be able to do what you want to do. Nice. Um, so a lot of times when we're dealing with a squat or really any lower leg movement, the knee, because it bends mostly in a hinge tends to just be the victim, if that makes yeah. sense. And yeah. we've got the ankle as being the culprit leading to that. Uh, and sometimes the hip. So yes. we'll kind of jump over the knee a little bit, unless you got something you want to mention, but maybe yeah. a, a test uh, that maybe people can do for the hip to see if the hip is ready to start squatting or squatting to uh, a pretty good depth. Yeah. I mean, the big thing I would look for at the hip. So there's the easy way to understand why we're going through this sort of approach of the ankle causes knee issues or the hip causes knee issues is it all stems from the joint by joint approach. Now this is nothing that any of us recently have come up with. It's something that's written on extensively by strength coach, Mike Boyle. And again, Gray Cook, uh, the guy who wrote the book movement. And it's basically a very simple way to break down the body and evaluate uh, how each joint sort of connects and links to others, um, almost assigning each joint a role in which it needs either mobility or stability to allow for sufficient movement. So the ankle, like we said, often requires more mobility, especially in dorsiflexion, which is the knee going over the toe. It's a very simple way of saying the knee or the ankle needs to be very mobile. And when it's not mobile, other things are going to break down. Now the knee needs to be very stable. So it needs to stay in line with your foot. Well, if your ankle is stiff, it's going to often lead to a breakdown in knee stability. That's why people who have very limited ankle mobility can see knee cave or that knee valgus, which is obviously a pretty big fault that can create some big issues, especially if you're seeing it with like a basketball or soccer player when they jump and land from a cut. 
However, the hip is sort of a dual role. It needs to be mobile, uh, but it also needs to be very stable. So it sort of is one of those dual role joints. As far as mobility of the hip, it needs to be able to flex. You need to be able to bring your thigh towards your chest. Um, a very simple test you can do, it's sort of part of the Thomas test. Uh, the Thomas test, if you Google it, is ideally meant to look at your hip flexor stiffness. But if you just lay on your back and bring one knee all the way to your chest, you can see whether or not you are blocked in bringing that all the way up there. So we're looking at hip flexion mobility. Now, most people don't usually have a huge issue in hip flexion. Now, they may have a hip impingement that limits it, in which case, again, sort of that pinch or block sensation, usually they'll feel that as they squat down as well. Doing banded joint mobilizations is huge for that. Um, what I find is most people often are very limited in their stability and coordination of the hip joint as far as the glutes, the way that they function. Um, a very simple test that you can perform is the single leg bridge test. Basically, you're going to lay on your back. One knee is going to be bent, the other leg straight. You're just going to bridge off the ground. So you're going to pick your hips off the ground and hold it for a couple seconds. And your goal in doing this is to assess what muscles are kicking on and to what degree. Now, ideally, your glutes, your big butt muscles should be the main driver of picking your hips up. That's called hip extension. If you think about it, that is the same movement theoretically as driving up out of the bottom of a squat, standing up from a deadlift, standing up from a cleaner snatch in the bottom position. Your glutes should be the main driver. They're the biggest, strongest muscles of your entire body, especially your glute max. Now, a lot of people will have a couple faults. They'll either have their hamstrings cramped, they will have their quads feel like they're working like crazy, or they will feel back pain. Now, each one of those are an incorrect way to produce hip extension. The hamstrings, they do help with hip extension, but they shouldn't be the main driver of hip extension. It should be your glutes. Uh, the quads do not create hip extension. Now, there, we can get really into the science with Lombard's paradox. Yes, the vastus muscles scientifically do transfer force, so it do help with hip extension, but during the bridge, they should not help. So basically, they should not be the main worker. And definitely your back should not be uh, creating a lot of tension or you shouldn't be feeling any pain when you're doing a single leg bridge. If you are, it's showing you that whenever you're doing a squat, likely you're compensating and using other muscles to a greater degree, which eventually can lead to an overload of those tissues and eventual pain development. So the big thing is just pick your hips off the ground. What do you feel? Do you feel your glutes working hard? Awesome. That's a pass. If not, that's a fail. Do it both sides, right and left side. You got two legs, we've got to test both sides. And then is there a difference? Some people will feel their glutes working hard on one side and on the other side, their hamstrings will cramp. Well, right there, you're showing yourself that you have an asymmetry. You have a side-to-side -side difference in the way that your body is producing hip extension. So something like that could be a factor, a driver behind why your body twists or shifts side to side whenever you're rising from a squat. Most of the time, a hip shift or a twist on the descent of a squat will be due to mobility issues like limited ankle mobility because as you squat down, your knee tries to translate forward over your toe, you hit that end range block, your body starts to twist in order to squat deeper. Well, if your squat looks good on the ascent, but it's not until the ascent that your body starts to twist or shift, it's likely not a mobility issue, it's likely more stability coordination. So the single leg bridge test is a very simple way to sort of uncover, make the, un, or make the invisible visible to allow yourself to understand, oh, it's a coordination issue. My right glute's not firing at all. That's why I'm shifting to a different side and trying to twist to get out of the squat. Now the fixes are very simple. For example, if a single leg bridge is tough or asymmetrical, we just regress back to the double leg version. And so the basic Double legs, you know, bridge can be a very simple corrective exercise to help fix that problem so that you can then put your squat back together. Nice. Yeah, I like how they broke that down. And that makes it super, super simple. Um, if I'm having issues on the way down or if I'm having issues on the way up, maybe we can start looking at those tracks. Uh, and I like, I mean, these are tests that everybody can do, whether you're new and you want to make sure that you you know, are starting from a really, really great square one, or if you've been squatting for years and years, you can do either of these tests and see, uh, do I have any limitations that I need to try and address, or are we good to go? Because here's the other thing too, and I'm sure you'd totally agree, is if you do the ankle dorsiflexion test, if you do the glute bridge test, 
and both of those are good and you feel great, then we're off to the races, right? I mean, exactly. So, because I mean, and maybe you've heard this term before, but we don't want to get stuck in kind of that rehab or prehab purgatory where we just do those few things for months on end before we finally start getting into doing something a little bit more strenuous. So let's say we've cleared these tests up. We've done some of the different uh, mobilization, uh, stability uh, things that we've talked about here. And now we're starting to load this thing up. I mean, obviously a great strength and conditioning program would be a good way to start. But, you know, in terms of loading or progressing a squat, do you have uh, preferred manner of doing it like so different types of squats whether it's front squat back squat or i mean let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit yeah i mean I, as far as the technique you choose i really think it's depending on your goals um you know your your upper body mobility for example you know if someone has very poor upper body mobility probably getting into a front squat's can be very difficult um you know i think the back squat is is basically the foundation for the squat i think everyone should be able to perform it. I don't know if I'm a huge fan necessarily being like, we need to goblet squat, then front squat, then back squat. I, you know, put the bar on your back. If you can get there, let's load it up. Um, you know, unless there's huge mobility restrictions that doesn't allow you to get in that position. Um, I also don't think it's like, we need to start with this one every single time, you know, start with the squat that you feel most comfortable with and just, just start loading. You know, I think the big thing is like you said, I think sometimes people spend too much time in the prehab side of things. I want you to fix what you can fix while we train what we can train. You know, your goal for being in the weight room is to lift some big weights, improve your strength, improve your performance for whatever your goals are, whether that's being a strength athlete or you're a football player, you want to improve your strength so you can be better on the field. You know, you're in the weight room to, to lift some big weights. So let's get to that. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing it correctly, obviously. So spending some time fixing those mobility or stability issues so that you can lift with good and acceptable technique is huge, but then it's time to go. You know, um, as far as the technique, like I said, I'm good with whatever you want to start with. I think the back squat, because of its ability to load the body, you can lift a ton of weight with the back squat comparatively to the other lifts. I think that's probably going to be the foundation for every single athlete. Are there exceptions? Sure. I've heard of certain athletes that only front squat. Um, I just think the back squats probably it's called the king of all exercises for a reason. Um, as far as, you know, picking a weight and where to start at and the programming, you know, again, it's, there's so many options out there. Um, as a beginner, really, you're going to see progress with anything, you know, uh, the first sometimes years of starting to lift as a beginner, the changes that you see as far as your ability to lift more weight aren't necessarily due to your muscles getting bigger or uh, just because of the strength program. It's because your body is neurologically adapting to lifting and becoming adapted to the new way of which you're moving. So uh, you could put someone on a five by five program or a five, three, one program or small love or something like that. And they're going to see progress with anything. Um, I will say you want to make sure that you are not jumping to a very intense program. If you are a beginner yet, you know, things like the Russian squat program or small love and things like that. I mean, those are, those are very high frequency, high volume yeah. plans that need to be taken with caution. If you're brand new to squatting, I will say this consistency and dedication to lifting with good technique and being in the gym and making sure that every single rep, no matter if it's the barbell or your top working set if you go about it where you're making sure that you're lifting with great technique, you know, every single time you're going to see improvements from then on out. It's, you know, it's up to you and your coach and what, uh, there's thousands of options as far as training programming goes. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about maybe a handful of accessory lifts that you recommend a lot, really enjoy, um, think translate to the squat very, very well. Uh, so do you have a short list, maybe three to five things that, yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I think the single leg squat or the touchdown squat is, has to be in every single person. So, so describe that real quick. So yeah. it's like, so when I mean single leg squat, I don't mean pistol squat. Uh, a lot of people take that and they're like, there's no way I can do a pistol squat, uh, which I highly doubt. I, I really think that almost everyone has the capability of performing a pistol squat. It's just to the extent that it may not look perfect but i think everyone has the potential to do that or most people do um i was working with jp price who's a uh very elite power lifter uh recently 
JP Price lifts uh, his best squats a thousand eight, I think, and the man can almost do a full pistol squat on his right side, weighing three hundred fifty pounds. So if you're telling me that you can't perform one because you're big, that's not the case. <laughs> but basically, while everyone may not have the potential to get down there all the way right now, doing a, a single leg squat to some extent is huge. Because the squat, again, it's not just a double leg exercise. While we may train big weights double leg, the squat is also a single leg movement. If you think about when you jump and land and then cut, you're also doing that on one leg sometimes. So you need the ability to coordinate and own your body's movement capabilities on one leg also through the descent and ascent of a squat. A touchdown squat is basically a single leg squat to a predetermined height. So you can start, lay a plate on the ground, a 45-pound plate. It's a couple inches off the ground. Stand on that and do a two to three-inch single-leg squat. It's the most simple thing ever. You're just going to stand on one foot, just like a squat. You want to engage your hips first, a little bit of a hip hinge. So butt goes back, chest comes forward. You squat down, tap your heel lightly, the free foot, and then come back up. The most simple version, touchdown. Um, you can do that and start building up the height. I had a 90 three-year-old grandma doing a six-inch box touchdown a year ago. Every single person should be able to do a single leg squat. And the thing is that whenever you don't have the ability to do that, when you can squat a thousand pounds, but if you don't have the ability to do a single leg squat, even off like a couple inch box without you know, your knee wavering around, your body losing its balance, it's showing you that you have a weak link in how you're controlling your body. And what that does is, again, it can create movement issues, technique problems, invite injury into the picture, and uh, limit what your body's potentially capable of doing performance-wise. So this is, again, it's an assistant exercise. So it shouldn't be your main form of training. After you're done with your squats, lay a couple plates on the ground, stack them up, do a couple sets of 10 to 15 single single leg squats and just work on your coordination. And if you're doing it right, your glutes are going to be burning like crazy, but it's going to be working your coordination and ability to own what your body is capable of doing on single leg. That's a huge, I mean, our reason for doing assistant exercises is to strengthen the ability of whatever your full lift was to sort of uncover and make the invisible visible of what issues you may have so that we can then fix and improve upon our main lift. So the single leg squat for sure has to be number one. Um, I'm a big fan of doing like uh, Bulgarian split squats. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a great one. Again, loading single leg, but again, it's, you're obviously in a little bit more balance because of that back foot that's resting on the box. Um, but again, another way that can really stress the body differently than the double leg version. Um, I guess I would call it a more of a corrective exercise and something I use during warmups rather than an assistant exercise. But I'm big on doing different things uh, that get you out of the normal straight forward and backward plane of motion that we're so common to use as strength athletes. Um, I like like lateral band walks, mm -hmm. uh, lateral kicks out to the side, things like that. They use sort of that side to side plane of motion because I think often as strength athletes, we can get accustomed to performing the exact same lifts, looking straight forward, moving straight up and down. And we sort of forget about that side to side component. And I think uh, when you do that over the years, you can sort of develop weak links in how your body is creating coordination, strength, stability that can eventually cause little cracks in your foundation that can invite injury in the picture. So I'll do band walks a lot, uh, lateral kicks out the side, things like that. Um, as far as core stability, obviously if you're doing your exercises correctly, using proper core stability, breathing, bracing correctly, you're already doing a ton of core stability. Every single exercise technically is a core stability exercise if you think about when you're doing it with the right emphasis. But if you want a little bit of added core work on top of that, maybe you have a history of back pain or you just want to work your core a little bit more. I love things like farmer uh, walks or suitcase carries, you know, single arm loading um, with that. I think that's huge. Um, yeah. I give that a lot as homework for my low back pain patients. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, you mentioned something right there that actually I kind of had on the docket that I wanted to talk about, uh, whether it's heavy squat, deadlift, uh, bench, even really any heavy movements, uh, people typically might try and brace, wear a belt, things of that nature. I have found that it has been taught like multiple different, like methods of bracing but there mm -hmm. tends to be a singular method that works really really well uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about breathing and bracing for let's say just a heavy squat 
Yeah, so the first thing we need to understand is the core is not just one muscle. There's multiple muscles on the front side, on the sides, on your back, almost like multiple different layers even too. Um, when most people think core stability, they automatically think about this ripped athlete with a huge six-pack. Well, that's obviously looking at your rectus muscle. That's one layer. And even then, that athlete probably just did a crap ton of sit-ups and has really low body fat percentage. Just because someone is ripped does not mean they have good core stability. Just because someone can do a ton of sit-ups does not mean they have good core stability because strength is different than stability. Strength is only your ability to produce force and power, which is what you're developing if you're doing sit-ups, if you're doing GHD back extensions or something like that. Stability is your ability to limit excessive or unwanted motion. So the way in which you train the core is going to be very different based on those two ideas. When we train the core, we want to almost uh, think about your core as all the muscles uh, turning on at the exact same time in a harmonious and synchronous fashion, almost like an orchestra playing. Every single piece of the orchestra has to basically play together in tune so that the orchestra sounds good. If you have the freaking tubas blowing off on the side, making some horrible noise, the, the orchestra is going to be messed up. The sound is going to be horrible. Same thing happens with your core. If your obliques are not working correctly, you could have the best uh, other muscles are working well, but your core as a whole is unstable. Another analogy a lot of people like to see is of a radio tower. If you ever are driving down the highway, you see a big radio tower, how's it held up? It's not just standing straight up and down in the air. It's held by a ton of different guy wires. Some wires go all the way to the top and run really, really long, sort of like your erector muscles. They run the span of your entire um, in your entire back. Also, you have very small guy wires, sort of like your QL, your quadratus laborum. It doesn't span your entire back. It's a very small muscle. But each and every one of those guy wires has a very specific job to apply tension to the entire system of your spine to then create sufficient stability for whatever task you're doing. If one of those muscles isn't working well, you obviously just clipped a guy wire. Obviously, the strength and stability of the radio tower isn't as good as it could be. So if a big wind comes through, like lifting a big weight, it could compromise the system as a whole, and that's how injury happens. So when we're thinking about creating core stability, it's a certain, uh, like I said, it's a synchronous and a harmonious fashion of all the muscles contracting at the same time. So that's what happens when we brace. Back in the like 70s and 80s, there was some research that came out, and a lot of people were like, oh, it's the transverse abdominis, or it's the QL. Well, what happened was they would do different research where they would put um, almost electrodes on the body, surface electrodes, and try to pick up the activity of certain muscles while people would perform different tasks, whether they were in pain or not in pain. And they concluded from their research articles that people who had back pain had a latency in how the transverse abdominis or QL would kick on. Basically, it was the faulted muscle in why that person had back pain was sort of the overall impression from the article. Well, A, there's a couple things wrong with that. First off, surface electrodes are very, very bad at picking up specific muscles, especially at the core where there's multiple layers of muscles. Um, also, in saying that, just because that one person or group of people showed that one muscle turned off uh, when they had back pain doesn't mean that that is the faulted muscle in that doing different exercises like hollowing or things like that is the way in which you fix it. Because there's no way that you can focus core stability exercises, even hollowing, on improving the activation of one specific muscle. When you brace, you turn on all the muscles. There's different cues that people like to use. I almost like to use the cue, uh, brace your core like someone's about to punch you around in the stomach. Mike Tyson's gonna come up and give you a blow. How are you gonna do that? You're gonna brace, you're gonna co-contract. Um, what that's going to create is contraction of all those muscles from the front side and back of your body. Just like the guy wires to the radio tower, they're all going to turn on at the same time and provide sufficient stability for the entire spine. Now, whenever you're doing a squat, obviously that's what we want to think about. We want to brace our core, turn those muscles on, and then squat. Depending on how much weight is on the bar is then going to determine how great of an extent of that brace is. Obviously, I don't want to brace down as hard as I can if I'm only squatting the barbell. I need to brace a little bit harder, obviously, if I'm going to try to squat you know, 500 pounds. In saying that, a way in which we can improve our core stability, even greater than just bracing alone, is proper breathing patterns. 
you also have this piece of flabby tissue in the middle of your core, I guess you would say it, called your diaphragm. And whenever you take a huge breath, that diaphragm <clears throat> contracts and it expands your abdominal cavity just a little bit. Um, obviously, all the air stays in your lungs, but you expand your diaphragm a little bit and then your abdominal cavity. Well, if you brace on top of that, it's like blowing up a balloon, but the balloon also has a lot of tape on the top of it. It can't expand very far, but it increases the pressure inside the balloon. So when you breathe and brace your core over the top, you increase intra-abdominal cavity pressure. And uh, that has been shown in research to increase core stability, which then means you can lift, uh, obviously a little bit faster with more power because the more core stability you have, the more power you can demonstrate in your extremities like your legs whenever we're squatting. Um, if you do that correctly, another thing, you almost activate your body's natural weightlifting belt. Well, that's a lot of people, they, they think about the weightlifting belt first, but they don't understand you were born with one. It's called your core. And if you use it correctly, breathing and bracing, you create a natural belt for you that keeps your back very safe. Now, can you use a weightlifting belt? I don't have a problem with it. It just has to be used for the right purpose and at the right time. A, you should not be using a weightlifting belt for lighter lifts. And you should not be using a weightlifting belt all the time. I'm a huge fan of using a weightlifting belt only on certain days. I like to almost track my heavy lifts, belted and non-belted. As far as whether that's a one rep max, a three rep max, five rep max, I want to know what I can do belted and non-belted. Um, whenever you put a weightlifting belt on and you use it correctly, research has shown that you can lift uh, with more power and maintain technique and speed for um, a greater rep range. So if you're doing like an eight rep max and you put a belt on, you're going to be able to have a little bit more power for longer. So sustain your technique mm -hmm. uh, than if non-belted. But again, you, that comes at the preface of saying, you have to be able to show good technique without the belt as well. It's only an additive for those who are wanting to really maximize their athletic performance. Um, you know, if your goal is just to be healthy and, and gain strength, you don't probably don't even need to use a belt. And I, I think the big thing is I find probably people overuse a belt and don't know how to lift heavy with it. Yeah. But for those who are competitive in either themselves or just want to lift uh, in competition, using a belt can be helpful um, at increasing your ability to produce strength and power because of its ability. It's basically almost like adding another layer of muscle to your core. So you can increase intra-abdominal cavity pressure. I believe research has shown anywhere from 20 to 40% more than when non-belted. So we have to take that into account. It can be helpful, but again, the big thing, you've got to be able to understand how to activate your body's natural weightlifting belt first. Yeah, I, a lot of great analogies there. One that I use that you might appreciate also is when you get that cylinder effect of all those core muscles working, it tends to look like kind of like a pop can. And so if you were to take a pop can that hasn't been cracked, uh, the seal is still there, and stand it up just upright, you could probably step on top of it and it's not going to crinkle or crumble or anything. But as yep. soon as you break the seal or as soon as you have a dent in that can, if you were to step on top of it, it would probably go because aluminum really isn't that strong, right? The things that, the, and so individually you can poke your side without any contraction and your finger is going to go into your belly pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But once we take this big breath in, push that diaphragm, which would be the top of the pop can. Once we push that down, create a lot of pressure. Uh, it becomes a very, very solid uh, cylindrical type uh, uh, structure that allows that low back to stay nice and safe, allows us to transfer force really well. And then the way I describe a weightlifting belt is imagine that same pop can, but now I was able to ratchet something down to squeeze in the edges to not change the content that's in there, but make the volume a bit smaller. If you know physics, that's going to increase the pressure overall. So that belt lets us increase that intra-abdominal pressure, but we still need that pop can, so to speak, to be there already, right? So a lot of great like things. Analogy. Um, so a few other things I want to talk about because we're getting close to about 45 minutes or so right now. Um, so we've talked about kind of going through ways that we can pick apart, making sure we're squatting well. So that ankle dorsiflexion, the hip stability, things like that. Um, obviously loading it up. We talked about breathing and bracing. 
Um, let's talk about, and we've even talked about a couple of accessory things that we like. You're really a big fan of the single leg stuff, which I am as yeah. well. Um, maybe, so two things that I can think of, um, I'll just mention them now and I'll let you talk, but one, maybe some warm ups before we get into the squat. And then two, uh, this might correlate with the ankle thing, but thoughts takes on a heel lift, weightlifting shoes, things of that nature. Um, I'll let you speak to those if you want. Yeah. So let's talk about first the warm up. The big thing, a warm up has to have two parts. You have your very general warm up and then you have your specific warm up. So when you get to the gym, your general warm up is basically just to get some blood flowing, get your muscles feeling well. Um, we increase what we call the thixotropic effect. If you think about when you open up a yogurt for the first time, it sort of looks a little hard, but then when you take a spoon, you mix it up, everything is, gets all gooey, I guess. <laughs> Good way to say mm -hmm. that's sort of how your body is, especially the muscles and the fascia and everything. Um, whenever you get to the gym, that's why you may feel a little stiff at first but then when you're on like a, a rower or a bike for five minutes you start feeling like you're moving well um, or you could just do a bunch of bodyweight squats or something like that uh, the big thing we need to get your blood pumping whatever that's uh, whatever you're doing I like to jump on like a, you know a concept rower or uh, an assault bike for two minutes you know something just to get your blood flowing um, after that you know we then need to work on priming our body for what we're doing for the day so I love doing a little bit of foam rolling, depending on whether or not I have some stiffness from maybe the day before. Uh, foam rolling, while it can obviously be improved for flexibility in the short term, um, it's also great at helping you decrease sort of that feeling of soreness, sort of that latent DOMS effect, a late onset muscle soreness. So, you know, rolling on those quads, if they're very, very stiff from, you know, squatting two days ago, can help you feel a little bit better for this next day. Um, after that, I like doing different uh, mobility and stability things based on what your body needs. For example, I like doing like the world's greatest stretch. Um, I like the goblet squat stretch. You're basically, if you're going to squat that day, just pick up either a heavy plate-ish, uh, you know, 25 pounds or so, or a kettlebell. Just hold it on in front of you and then squat all the way down to the bottom. Have your elbows not resting on your knees so that you can then feel almost your body sinking into the greatest deep position. You're going to feel your glutes kicking on. You're sort of exploring that bottom position, getting your body accustomed to where you're then going to use it. So it's more of that mobility, stability, activation. Um, I then will perform maybe a couple reps where I'm sort of making a small ascent feeling my glutes turn on, squeezing my butt muscles, and then sink back down. I'll do a couple of those. Um, I may do, like I said, some lateral band walks, different things like that. What you need to do is going to be a little individual to what your body needs to prime those mobility restrictions. So if you have ankle mobility problems, do a little ankle mobility work, whether that's stretching and foam rolling, um, some stability work. Let's say you had an issue like we talked about with the glutes kicking on. Do maybe a set of bridges, 10 reps for five-second holds. Once you feel your butt muscles kicking on, awesome. Let's go now to the next thing. Um, but the big thing I like to get across to people, whenever you squat, the first thing you do shouldn't be get in, you know, put weight on the barbell and then go. You need to acclimate your body to what you're about to do so that you can perform to the best you can and stay safe. Your first set should not be with loaded barbell. Um, you know, uh, do a set of 10 reps with the barbell alone. Go slow on the way down. Sit in the bottom of a deep squat for 5 to 10, 15 seconds and just feel for your body uh, how it's feeling. You know, be very conscious of uh, do I feel a little stiff on my right side? Is my left glute maybe not feeling like it's activating sitting down here? I like doing a number of reps there, uh, maybe with some sufficient pauses all the way up again, sort of feeling for the glutes turning on. Um, and then it's time to put the barbell, you know, put some weight on the barbell, but it's all about sort of the general warm up and then the specific warm up with the barbell first, and then you load the weight on, you know, even if you watch the best weightlifters in the world, they don't just come in and put weight on, you know, they're warming up, they're getting their body moving, they're doing mobility exercises. They may do two rounds of warm ups with the open barbell alone, and then they start adding weights. So that's the big thing I think people um, can really help them is it's okay to squat just the open barbell for two sets of 10. You know, if people are looking at you weird, you're warming up, mm -hmm. you're going to put some weight on. Don't, you know, let the haters judge and see what they think. You know, oh, yeah. like you're going to be feeling better whenever you start putting weight on. So, so that's long, a big thing. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, so generally speaking, um, cause I see this a bunch, how long yeah. should someone spend in their warm up? So from you the know, time you walk into the gym, mm -hmm. you hop on the air bike, uh, to the time you start putting a little bit of weight on the bar. Yeah. You, you know, for, for me, I, you know, I don't get a lot of time to work out. Uh, I, I do a lot of my training over lunchtime while I'm seeing, you know, in between patients. 
and I can get in a good warm up in about 15 to 20 minutes. I'm grabbing the barbell. You know, I think every single person, I think a lot of people they're like, Oh, I need 50 minutes. I'm like, that's, that's a long time. I think most people can be a little bit more efficient than a 45 minute warm up. If you've got three hours to warm up, understandable that you're taking your time during your warm ups. But the big thing, I want you to be efficient and effective with what you're doing for your warm up. I don't think probably a 45 minute warm up is probably necessary. I think you could probably cut that down and still be as efficient, save yourself a little bit of time. I definitely think five minutes is too little. Um, so I think it's all about sort of finding what your body needs, hopefully getting that in about 15, 20 minutes max should be an efficient use of your time. Nice. And then the other thing I wanted you to mention, uh, a heel lift or weightlifting yeah. shoes. So when is it appropriate? Uh, I guess another thing is what does it even do? Some people, yeah. you know, they, I see that question a lot in some, uh, yeah. uh some forms. So, uh, so for sure. Ahead. So. A, a heel of a weightlifting shoe, all it does is it raises up, obviously, your heel from the ground, which allows your knee to translate further forward over your toes, which then allows you to sink a little bit deeper into a squat, whether that's with a regular barbell squat, a clean or a snatch, to have a more upright chest position. Now, where did weightlifting shoes even come from? Well, back in the uh, 50s and 60s, weightlifters were sort of experimenting, and these are Olympic weightlifters, so snatch and clean in competition. They were experimenting with different shoes that would then help them perform the best. You know, back in the day, it was almost like a flat sole shoe. Well, when you raise that heel up a little bit off the ground, like I said, it allows you to sit deeper into a squat with a more upright chest position. This allows you then, especially when you are weightlifting, when you are doing a snatch and clean and jerk for competition, to hit even more efficient positions to allow you to be more proficient with your lifting and lift more weight. So that's why lifters first started using them back in like the 50s and 60s because they could lift more weight with them. They could get under more weight with that upright chest. So you're seeing numbers of the cleans and snatches jump like crazy uh, you know, through that time. So obviously the evolution of the weightlifting shoe has become now not only something in weightlifting, but also you see it in sports. Uh, CrossFit obviously uses a number of the weightlifting movements. Um, you see it sometimes in just powerlifting uh, or just in the regular you know, fitness world. Whenever you go to a Gold's Gym, you may see just uh, someone walking in and using a weightlifting shoe. What, like I said, the weightlifting shoe does is allow you to change and modify what positions you can get into. Depending on what type of lifting you're doing, you may or may not need it. You know, um, For the sport of weightlifting, it is advised that everyone wear a pair of weightlifting shoes. A, it's going to be something that even the most mobile athletes use because A, it's going to allow them to get into even better positions. That's one thing. People say, well, I'm already very mobile. Do I need to pair of wear, wear a pair of weightlifting shoes? Well, yes. If your goal is to be an Olympic weightlifter, the best weightlifters in the world are very mobile and yet they're still wearing weightlifting shoes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're hitting even better positions. Um, if your goal is just to, you know, lift some big weight and go to gold's gym, do you need a pair of weightlifting shoes? It depends. You know, are you hitting the positions that you need to be in? You know, uh, for example, as a power lifter, if your goal is to lift as much weight in the squat in competition, you know, you may be using a low bar back squat, which means that your chest is naturally going to be a little bit more inclined. Um, and you also don't need to squat ass to grass. You know, you need to get to the point where your hip crease is below the tops of your knees. So you may not need to use a weightlifting shoe. Some athletes just use a flat sole shoe. That's why it's very common to see powerlifters just use like a Chuck Taylor. You know, it's a flat sole shoe with a hard piece of rubber on the bottom that allows them a firm, basically, surface to push off of, but it doesn't give them any active ankle assistance. Um, you know, but there's also, like I said, JP Price squats a thousand some pounds. He wears a, a Nike Ramella weightlifting shoe. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing it. It's just about finding what you're comfortable with. So I think the first thing is understanding what it does. If you want to squat deeper, um, you know, and have a more upright chest, if you have any desire to do any of the Olympic lifts, wearing a weightlifting shoe is highly recommended. If you are just squatting for the love of it or you are powerlifting, try it out. See if you like it or if you don't. There's also different sizes, uh, you know, the, the classic Olympic weightlifting shoe has a heel drop of 23 to 24 millimeters, which means the heel is that much higher than the toe, but they also have a half size heel now available like the Adidas power lift, um, where it's like maybe only a 14 millimeter heel drop. But again, it's a firm surface to push off of that elevates your heel and changes your technique. Um, one thing it doesn't do is decrease your ankle mobility. People are like, Oh, if you weightlift and you use weightlifting shoes, you're going to hurt your ankle mobility. No, it doesn't do that at all. 
it may restrict you and blind you to the fact that you have ankle mobility restrictions, but it's not going to decrease your ankle mobility. I use weightlifting shoes all the time. Uh, whenever I'm lifting, I have really good ankle mobility. It's because I also get into a deep body weight squat frequently throughout my day without weightlifting shoes on to explore what that bonded position looks like and understand and clue me to the fact if my ankles are starting to feel tight. Um, there's a number of great options uh, in the market today. You know, you don't have to spend $250 on a pair of shoes like you used to. Yeah. Um, you know, you can buy a pair of entry weightlifting shoes, do wind makes a shoe. I've seen some rogue shoes that are a little bit cheaper. Um, you know, you, you can get an entry pair of shoes for under hundred us dollars, uh, which is nice. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of options out there today. Sweet. So you brought up just briefly there, uh, last point we'll probably talk about cause we're encroaching in an hour here, uh, squat depth. So mm-hmm. how do I know how deep I should squat? Um, and when is it important to really be pushing the boundaries? Yeah. So it all depends again on your goals. You know, I think everyone should have the ability to squat to what I would say is a acceptable depth, which is the hip crease below the tops of the knees. Um, you know, that's sort of the passing grade for a powerlifting squat on top of that. It then comes with your goals. If you have any desire to be an Olympic weightlifter or perform the cleans and snatches, you need to be basically take your squat to a full depth, which means squatting as deep as possible while maintaining good upright core, good posture, uh, you know, everything else technique wise is maintained. You need to squat as deep as that is, you know, is capable for your body because, as an Olympic weightlifter, someone with the desire to do snatches and cleans, the squat is technically an accessory lift to strengthen the positions needed for those lifts. So if you're squatting high and only going to like barely below parallel for a squat, it's not necessarily going to have carryover to the full clean and jerk because you're never getting into that bottom position. You're not owning that bottom position. So, uh, you know, the squat is first and foremost – uh, a movement. So if we're just talking body weight, you should be able to go ass to grass. You should be able to sit in the bottom of a deep squat and feel comfortable. On top of that, the barbell movement is something that is going to be specific to your goals. I don't need a power lifter to squat ass to grass because A, it's not as efficient at lifting as much weight than going to, you know, just under that parallel position. Uh, if you're an Olympic weightlifter and you want to perform and excel at those lifts, you better be able to go to full depth. So I think both of those come into play. Nice. Um, I don't know what you use frequently, but a lot of times, especially again, kind of that low back pain patient, if I want to keep them squatting, um, I recommend getting back into some box squats. So that maintains our uh, lumbar curve as best we can. Uh, and especially doing the box squat where we, I tell them, imagine there's an egg there on the box sit down, trying not to break the egg so that you, as softly as possible, get onto the box. We're going to gather ourselves from the box and then back up so we don't get a impact that's uh, loading the spine, you know, vertically, all those things. Um, but I've found if someone has trouble hitting depth or maybe doing, you know, an grass squat or trying to perform that anyway causes some low back discomfort or, or just feels awkward, maybe you're still learning the movement. Um, that's a really, really great lift that you can do instead of your full depth to really kind of uh, start to master that movement. Exactly. And I think the big thing, like you talked about the box squat, so many people, they'll sit on the box and they'll rock back. Now, Mm -hmm. A, that does two things. That doesn't look like a regular squat. The goal with the box squat is to strengthen the movement of the full squat. So why are you rocking back? That's going to load your body very differently than a full squat. Um, But then you're also going to have to shift forward and then stand up. So a lot of times you can cheat and sort of create a little momentum, which is the opposite of the goal from doing a box squat. Box squat should there be there to parallel the exact same positions you want to hit in a regular free squat, but just with a breakup of the concentric ascent and the eccentric lower to pause and then to come back up. Nice. Uh, I think that covers a lot about one squatting, but two, how we can progress, how we can find out where we need to be and things of that nature. Um, anything else you might want to talk about? Uh, not off the top of my head. Thank you so much for, for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Of course. So where can people find you? What are some things that people can't for resources that people can look up? 
Yeah, I mean, just all across the internet, social media-wise, Instagram is the main page I think that I have. Uh, I probably put the most emphasis in as far as the content I put out there every single day. But I'm on Twitter, at Squat University, Instagram, Squat University, Facebook, either I have a Squat University page or my own personal page, Dr. Aaron Horshig. Um, Snapchat, I think, is just at uh, Aaron Horshig and YouTube. Uh, my own uh, podcast is just Squat University Podcast, um, and then squatuniversity.com is my blog website where I have a lot of written words. So I try to create content in every single aspect, audio, visual, and written word. Nice. Yeah, and he's got tons and tons, probably one of the leading guys uh, on free stuff in, in terms of uh, the information he's given out. But And he didn't really mention it too much, and I've kind of mentioned it a few times with the Squat Bible. If you haven't picked it up, <laughs> yes. uh, it's a great – it's not very thick either, so don't be intimidated by thinking that it's going to be this giant, massive manual. Um, but if you are somebody who is trying to get into, you know, doing a squat, making sure you're doing it well, making sure you're protecting yourself and making sure you can do it for long periods of time, that's a great resource to have. So, well, awesome. Dr. Horshig, it was great having you on and, uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's definitely an honor. No problem. Take care. Thanks, man.